It's so good to be able to come together this afternoon, and good to see everyone who is gathered here tonight. It really is a tremendous honor, a great privilege that's been given to you and me, isn't it? That while we tabernacle in this flesh, that we can, in fact, devote every Lord's Day with faithfulness and with conviction in those particular services to offer worship service to the great and almighty and awesome God of heaven. It is the case this evening as we come to a consideration of a lesson I've entitled Day of the Lord. I hope that you have your Bible ready. Hope that for the next few moments our hunger for the Word of God can be satisfied at least in regard to this topic. Let me begin by asking you to consider some of these introductory remarks. You probably are well aware that that phrase by itself, and as you looked at the bulletin, or even as you gave thought just a moment ago to that title, I'm sure many things already were conjuring up in your mind as you reflect on what does that phrase indicate. As you well know, there are many assertions in our current religious world about what the day of the Lord involves. There are assertions, in fact, that it is a cataclysmic consideration in which the Lord Jesus is going to return and set up His universal reign as He defeats evil upon this earth. Is that what it means? Well, let's see. One of the things we'll try to do tonight, I hope you have your Bible, we'll be looking at a number of verses, and we may not read all of them, but we'll at least make reference to them. So if you'd like to make notes so you can study some of this on your own, I would encourage you to do that. But be impressed with this. As you think about the day of the Lord... Isn't it true that God created time? Every day, in some sense, belongs to Him. So what does the Bible then mean when it makes an especial reference to the day of the Lord? Not only that, you'll notice that the phrase itself occurs 25 times in the Word of God, and 20 of those are in the Old Testament. We will in one way or another at least reflect on all of them tonight as we give consideration to what was involved in that passage. It's always our earnest desire to rightly divide the word of truth and to apply it and implement it in the way that God has so indicated. One final thought on that slide then is this. If it is used with a variety of meanings in some of those verses, I wonder what they are. With that in mind, let's proceed. You'll notice that first I've tried to divide the Old Testament references into a particular set of appreciations by book. And in passing, let's highlight the features of them. First of all, that Old Testament book of Joel. Now you'll notice several occurrences in that book of this phrase. What did it mean? Let me invite you to consider the circumstances. The prophet Joel was commissioned by God to preach and to proclaim God's message in a time when there had been a devastating plague of locusts, a plague that had consumed and utterly destroyed so many of the features and attributes of the economy in ancient Judah. And yet, with regard to that, the day of the Lord was described in regard to God's coming judgment in regard to the reality of what those locusts had brought and what the coming character of God's judgment on His disobedient people would be. I've tried to state it like this. God's people had rejected Him. Although they had been given the Word of God, although they had those Ten Commandments and all the law of Moses that went with it, they had so often chosen to be rebellious. 
the plague of locusts was supposed to be a good lesson. God, in essence, said, do you see what these locusts have done? They have utterly decimated this land, but guess what? To all of those who reject my word and do not enjoy faithfulness and obedience to me, there's something even worse than that waiting. In other words, the day of the Lord was described in a way in which it was a scene of God's judgment and wrath upon those who had not been faithful to Him. Let's look at another one. What about the book of Amos? Now, the book of Amos, of course, was a different book than Joel, but you could quickly appreciate that in this little book of, of the Old Testament, God again warned His people in, in a majestic way. He pointed out to them rather directly, Prepare for the day of the Lord's at hand. They were reminded in no uncertain terms that one more time the judgment of God would rest upon those who themselves had been disobedient. Let's pause for just a moment and already begin to plant a seed of appreciation in our heart. Although there are many today who are under the impression the day of the Lord is a great thing. It's a day when God's goodness, His mercy will be fully extended. It's a day of positive joyousness. And the two cases we've seen so far in which that phrase has been used were days of God's judgment and wrath poured out upon those who had not been obedient to Him. Let's see if that pattern continues. What if we come to the book of Isaiah? Isaiah is a much longer Old Testament book, and this phrase, this consideration occurs in it as well. In Isaiah 2 as well as Isaiah 13, these particulars are set forth, and may I again at least describe in the main most of it. God's people, 750 years prior to the birth of Jesus Christ our Lord, here was a group of people who, though again having been blessed with the prophets and being blessed with the actual nature of the Word of God, they had chosen to direct their lives in such a way that it was a poor reflection of what God wished them to be. In Isaiah chapter 1, in fact, God rather remarkably painted a dramatic and vivid picture. He said, even a cow knows its owner, a beast of the field. And yet here are my people who they've rejected me, they've turned their considerations from me, they haven't been faithful to me. Notice in that context, God says the day of the Lord's coming, a day in which God is going to equip the powers of this earth. And by that I mean the actual nations. I've listed the special character of Babylon. Babylon had been so mighty and so great, she had been in fact undefeated by so many other nations. And God says, I'm going to bring her down. It's going to happen in the day of the Lord. This people have been disobedient toward me. They have been so often cruel and inhumane. It is in that regard the day of the Lord's described one more time. By now, I think we're all beginning to appreciate, as the Old Testament writers at least use these, this phrase, they used it in relation to events within nations on this earth. It didn't have anything to do, at least at that time, with the end of time. What if we go to the next slide? Let's come for just a moment to the prophets of Jeremiah and Ezekiel. Two of the other major prophets of the Old Testament. 
in those descriptions, you'll notice a number of places. Jeremiah 46, Ezekiel 13, as well as Ezekiel 30. As you look at them, notice with brevity what it is that I have asked us to consider. The day of the Lord, as it's described, had to do, firstly, with the pouring out of God's wrath, this time on Egypt. Now, in the previous slide, it was Babylon who was going to be the recipient of this day of the Lord set of activities. This time, it's Babylon. You can begin to appreciate then that this day of the Lord phrase was a very prolific one in the utility of the prophets. It highlighted God's thundering power. It highlighted the nature of what He's able to do. Our God rules, you see, in the kingdoms of men. That statement of Daniel 4.25 is highlighted, as you note, the last phrase in this. A very sad refrain is given. How terrible it is to consider that some are unprepared for the day of the Lord. Even in Ezekiel's day, it was a lamentation. Some are going to be unprepared, but yet that doesn't mean it won't come. That day still was going to come as God's wrath and judgment led to the overthrow of nations. Let's come to the next one. What about Zephaniah as well as Obadiah? By now, we're already beginning to see yet another consideration. It's the prophets of the Old Testament that so frequently made reference to this phrase. Isn't it true as you come to Zephaniah? In many ways, the phrase, Day of the Lord, is the key phrase in the book of Zephaniah. If you just remember that, it'll really help you a great deal toward appreciating the thoroughness of that three-chapter book. Zephaniah, again in three chapters, sets before the people of that day a rather stern and severe and timely message. To highlight it one more time, the nations. Now this time I'd like to take just an additional moment if I could. In the previous examples, we've noticed God's wrath poured out on Babylon or on Egypt or on maybe some of the other foreign nations to Israel. This time, Zephaniah's message was this, You, Judah, you who are the God's people, you're going to receive the day of the Lord. And the thing of it is, the people of Zephaniah's day were excitedly waiting for the day. They thought it was going to be a day of gladness and joy, a day of jubilation and celebration. God through Zephaniah says, I've got another message for you. It's going to be a day of darkness, a day of gloominess, a day of punishment, a day of wrath. You see, they were under a complete and terrible misperception of what that day was going to be. But one more time, it was a day of God's judgment. And it was going to be poured out on His own people this time, again, due to their own disobedience. Obadiah, the only one chapter book in the Old Testament. That little phrase also occurs in that book in the 15th verse. And on that occasion, one more time, as that book closes, it is a powerful refrain about this fact and this truth. God, as He looked upon His people... He highlighted as that little book closes how that one more time they would be the recipient of just as the nation of Edom will have begun. One more time as all these nations were the recipients of this day of the Lord. Let's close this slide with two final prophets. Zechariah on the one hand and Malachi on the other. 
As you think about Zechariah, I often call that blessed and great prophet. And per square inch, there's more, if you please, in that book about the coming of Jesus than any other Old Testament book. And yet you'll notice one more time in Zechariah 14, it's God's judgment. Wouldn't you agree so far then that all these references, there's been one theme in common. The day of the Lord, rather than being a day of ease and jubilation and victory, by and large for those it has been a day of darkness and gloominess and wrath and judgment from a loving but merciful God upon those who finally had rejected the long-suffering nature of the God of heaven. Surely in light of that, let's close it with in many ways what occurs in the very last chapter of the very last book of the Old Testament. In the fourth chapter of Malachi, there is something said in verses 4 and 5 of that chapter that's very telling and compelling. It is an affirmation that Elijah was to come. And surrounding it was the appreciation that it would occur at the day of the Lord. Now the Jews, of course, cast a strong spotlight on the reality of another coming of the one called Elijah. But as you and I will see shortly, that had a far different message and a far more telling matter than that. Why don't we draw some conclusions then. All of these Old Testament references bring us, at least bring me, to ask if you don't think it reasonable to say, the day of the Lord in all of these instances has been primarily in reference to the overthrow of nations, Nations who themselves were disobedient to God and the day of the Lord was a day of their defeat when another nationality would overwhelm them, when another people would consume them. That certainly has been a common theme. But with that, would you not say this? Any nation that rejects God is in a pitiful state. Any nation that turns its back upon the God of heaven is on the road to ruin. Any nation that rejects the pillar and foundation of truth that the God of heaven has set forth, that nation is eventually going to crumble. In Psalm 9:17, notice there what's affirmed in regard to any nation that forgets God. The Holy Word of God says they'll be turned into hell. Now that's a frightening spectacle. But doesn't it remind us that our God, of course, does rule in the things of men? In Psalm 144, verse 15, who is the happy people? Oh, how well the psalmist declared it when? Happy is the people whose God is the Lord. That's what leads to happiness and propriety. That's what leads to satisfaction and things proceeding in a way that's well. Maybe it is in light of those things. Let's close that slide by noting there was an occurrence or two of Old Testament usages of day of the Lord that didn't expressly refer only to the overthrow of nations. May I call your attention to the closing part of that slide. The other references, as for instance in Joel 2, Zechariah 14, and Malachi 5, they all seemingly surrounded a moment, an occurrence, an event of spiritual upheaval when there was a tremendous overthrow of the order of things, replacing it with a new order. The idea is very fitting. The day of the Lord 
will be the day on which things like this have happened. I say that because look at the following. What was it that Joel declared in the closing four verses of Joel chapter 2? A statement was made, and it was very graphic and very vivid and very dramatic. This description of a certain time when in this day of the Lord certain things would happen. What things, Joel? Well, as you and I would read that, we might struggle mightily to understand what it meant with the exception of this truth. A New Testament writer quotes that verbatim and says, This is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. There we have it. In other words, what Joel prophesied over 800 years prior to the birth of Jesus, the inspired writer Luke in writing Acts chapter 2, quoting the events relative to the day of Pentecost, said this is what Joel was talking about. This is what Joel prophesied. This is the day of the Lord's set of activities. You and I understand well what that means. That Old Testament order was giving way to a new one. The law of Moses had been in effect for the Jews. The patriarchal law had been in effect for the Gentiles. They were both going to be superseded, giving way to the finer, perfect will that was going to last to the end of time. Talk about a spiritual upheaval. That's what was occurring. And Peter, by inspiration, declared it so profoundly. This is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. And then he quotes the very set of verses wherein that phrase occurs. Look at another example in Matthew 11, verse 14. I mentioned a moment ago about that closing chapter to the Old Testament, Malachi 4, in which it was says, Elijah is for yet to come. Now the fact is that literal Elijah had been dead for hundreds of years, in fact over 400 years by then. And yet the prophet Malachi said, Elijah's yet to come. The Jews, in fact, laid a great deal of emphasis on that. In fact, expecting that again God was going to infuse the world with the blessing of an actual, physical, literal Elijah with that personage. But yet in the days of Jesus, in Matthew 11, what did our Master say? When there were people who asked Jesus about John the Baptist... Jesus, in no uncertain terms, said, This is Elijah, which was for to come. The Old Testament appreciation of a coming Elijah, here he is. He's John the Baptist. And Jesus was very quick to tell them, John preached to you the law, and he preached to you the things of God, but you didn't listen very well. You notice then that just as Elijah was bold, and just as Elijah was direct, well, so too was John. Maybe it is in light of those things. This day of the Lord's been an interesting, interesting phrase, but we aren't finished. What about the New Testament? Let's turn the slide and come to the 27 books that comprise the New Testament. Once we, in fact, study this, we'll make some closing thoughts and remarks about the totality of our lesson tonight. As you and I come to the New Testament, the book of Acts is where we must begin, for that's the first time that phrase occurs. We've already discussed in some detail these features. It was just a moment ago. Peter, on that day of Pentecost, you remember with me how that the Holy Spirit had baptized those apostles in Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. 
In other words, it came on them and they were then granted the capability to speak in languages that they'd never learned. And they were equipped and infused with the full measure of proclamation of truth. Jesus had told them that. Howbeit when He, the Spirit of truth, is come, He will guide you into all truth, Jesus told them in John 16, 13. And so it was on that day of Pentecost, Peter and the other preachers, they preached the unsearchable riches of the truth of Jesus Christ as they did. You and I remember well what occurred. About 3,000 of them that day were pricked in their heart, Acts 2.37. And they cried out, men and brethren, what should we do? They knew that in a proverbial way, the blood of Jesus Christ was dripping from their hands and they wanted remission from it. What a great upheaval. They couldn't be cleansed by the old law of Moses. That wouldn't do it. They couldn't be cleansed by the old patriarchal system. That wouldn't suffice. Aren't you and I still in a position to recollect that on that Mount of Transfiguration, the God of heaven said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye Him. Don't hear Moses any longer. Though Moses there appeared on that Mount of Transfiguration, the days of hearing Moses were over. Elijah was there too. Don't hear Elijah anymore. The days of hearing both Moses and Elijah were ended. Jesus Christ is who to hear now. And on that day of Pentecost, the days then of that upheaval had come. Look at the next one in the Corinthian letters. In 1 Corinthians 5, we find another phrase. It's the day of the Lord Jesus, now quite frankly, there. But isn't it interesting, again, the telling way in which it appears? Here was a man living in sin, living in fornication, and the church needed to withdraw its fellowship. And Paul, in fact, gave them those instructions, but in the course of it, he says, Do this so that in the day of the Lord Jesus that man can be saved. Oh, what a powerful passage. The goal was out of love for that man. It's true he had made a terrible error, but out of love for his soul, you need to do this congregation at Corinth. And of course they did. But there, that day of the Lord Jesus, of course, takes us to the reality of that final occurrence of judgment in which everyone's going to give account for the deeds done in the body. And in that day, the hope was for that man to be saved. Let's read further. In 2 Corinthians 1, verse 14, this is an occasion when we notice that there's a reference to some rejoicing in regard to the day of the Lord. So some, of course, at least in the context of that passage, will enjoy a time of jubilation, celebration, tremendous rejoicing. Hold on to that thought, for it will reappear again shortly. How about the books of Thessalonians? In 1 Thessalonians 5 in particular, could I ask you to, to cast a spotlight on the second verse of that chapter? The Thessalonian congregation had been in a bit of a difficult position in that they had misappreciated some things relative to the end of time. They were confused. Now, not because Paul hadn't taught them correctly when he was there, because he had. But after his departure, others had so moved them, influenced them, that they were now under a bit of uncertainty. 
the books of First and Second Thessalonians in eight rather scintillating chapters. It puts before the congregation at Thessalonica a number of truths relative to the day of the Lord, but this one is so critical for our study tonight. It's going to come like a thief in the night. Think about that. This day of the Lord, Paul wrote in no uncertain terms, will come like a thief in the night. You might appreciate at that moment it hadn't yet come, but it was certain, for he said will. He didn't say it might. It perhaps will. He said it will come, but it'll be unannounced. We each know that thieves don't announce when they're coming. They don't send over a telegram and say, I'll be over at 5 past 11 this coming Saturday night. For if they did, we'd have the law waiting. Or we'd be waiting one or the other. However it be, we know thieves don't give us any advance warning. And you and I will notice in regard to the, the day of the Lord, that'll be a critical point as we come to the next slide in a moment. The Thessalonian letters take us to one last one. It was the lesson text for tonight. In the 10th verse of 2 Peter 3, it's a scene, it's a passage that is filled with interesting appreciations. But the day of the Lord shall come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, the elements shall melt with fervent heat, the earth and the works that are therein shall be burned up. Now again, may I ask you to notice, Peter's reference is not to something that had passed. So all of those references to the day of the Lord we studied in the Old Testament in relation to Judah or Babylon or perhaps Egypt or one of those other nations, that was a different kind of appreciation than this when Peter said, this is yet to come. The day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. As you think about that particular appreciation, notice what destruction will accompany it. And it's not just the destruction of, of a nation. It's the destruction of the entire order of the earth. But it's not even just that. He did say the earth and the works that are therein shall be burned up, but what preceded it? The heaven shall pass away with a great noise. It'll not just be the ending of earth. It's the ending of the entirety of the material order. What a day of the Lord that's going to be. As you notice the description then put before us in that passage, let's draw some conclusions about this New Testament usage of the day of the Lord. Could we perhaps begin like this? The usage in the book of Acts, it highlighted a spiritual upheaval. The putting in place of the new order in that the final law and testament for the human family was now given. May you and I appreciate there will never, ever be another law. This is it. Now, it's true the old law of Moses did give way to a new law, for that old law of Moses was nailed to the cross, Colossians 2 verse 14. But this law beneath which you and I now serve is permanent. It'll last until time shall be no more. It will last until the last day. And isn't it true that then the spiritual upheaval spoken of in Acts chapter 2 brought into place the perfect absolute will from heaven? Might you and I always be impressed with the perfection of the gospel system? Remember, that was one of the points of the Hebrew writer in Hebrews chapter 8. 
where in the 13 verses of that chapter, consider some of the wordings. A better covenant is now in force. Better than the old law of Moses. It has better promises than the law of Moses. The word better is a key word in the book of Hebrews. And there's two of its principal usages. Not only that, look at the scene of these other New Testament references. At this point, might we make this observation. These other references in the New Testament in which this day of the Lord occurs are references not to the overthrow of a nation, not to God's judgment on a particular group of people while living in the flesh on earth, but the references to something I've described like this. It points the finger at that final day. The one that's supposed to come like a thief in the night. The one that's spoken of beginning in verses like this one. In Matthew 24, verse 44, Jesus spoke about this coming day. He says people will be, they'll marry and are given in marriage. But the day of the Lord is going to come and not even the Son of Man knows when it'll be. You see, on the calendar of God at this moment, the day of the Lord has already been penciled in. He knows when it's going to happen. He didn't tell any of the prophets and He hasn't told you and me. Despite the fact that some of the human family have dared to predict it. And they have even gone on public record as asserting such. And of course they have everyone been foolishly wrong. Because no man knows. Nobody knows. May you and I never forget that in Matthew chapter 24, when Jesus made that statement, wouldn't you think that if anybody would have been able to deduce from the Old Testament Scriptures when the, the day of the Lord would come, if it were revealed at all, that Jesus would have been able to do it? And Jesus quoted from the book of Daniel, and He quoted from a number of other books, and the Lord said He didn't know. It seems to me incredibly blasphemous for a man to think he knows if the Lord Jesus Christ didn't. And of course, you and I know that it's going to come like a thief in the night. Not only that, would you be impressed with the destruction that again accompanies it? Planet Earth, in all of its systems, in all of its environs, in all of the capabilities, and notice again, it says the earth and the works that are therein. That word works identifies all of the attributes and all of the particulars that have been constructed in relation to earth. Notice though it also said the heavens and the elements. Now you and I know from a standpoint of science that things are composed of atoms. And the word elements just literally in that context means the most fundamental basic constituents of something. May I say that it's not that God's merely going to destroy the major systems of earth or even of the universe. It's even down to the most minute, fundamental, elemental components. All of it will be destroyed. This universe, you see, will be such that it will have been brought to its end. And it will not be in the mechanisms and the ways that some of our scientist friends would suggest. For again, notice, it's not going to be able to be predicted to that, why don't we add this? Perhaps making a full circle in light of our study tonight. 
some of those Old Testament references, in fact, many of them, was to the fact that the day of the Lord is a day of darkness and gloominess and judgment. It's a day of God's wrath poured out on those who haven't received Him. And yet, at the end of time, there will be a parallel consideration. You see, there's coming a vast and tremendous day. Jesus described it like this in Matthew 25, 31. All nations will be gathered before Him. How many, Lord? He said, all. Every human being who has ever lived will in fact be assembled before the mighty presence of the Son of God, the very one who died for every one of them. But not every one of them received the blessing of His blood. Not every one of them were obedient. So what will be the circumstances of those who are the disobedient? It indeed will be a day. Though it is, of course, the day of the Lord, it shall be a day of darkness and gloominess for them. No wonder Jesus said that they'll be cast into a place of outer darkness, Matthew 25, 30. And no wonder it's a day described in other ways like this, a day of gloominess and judgment. They'll receive it in all of its fullness. I would ask you to reflect on just a few of the verses that I have listed for your consideration. In Revelation chapter 6, one by one as the seven-sealed book the seals are loosed, and the events and the characteristics are, are, are revealed. Seals 1 through 4 had to do with those events surrounding the Roman Empire of that day. Seal number 5 and then seal 6 is where we need to come to for the present moment. When that sixth seal was opened, it was a tremendous set of ideas and things that took place as great destruction occurred. And so much so that we see the following picture. There were some who were so agitated and bothered that they cried out for the rocks to fall on us for the great day of His wrath is come and who shall be able to stand? The day of the Lord, you see. It will be a day of recognition of the very one whom I should have been serving in life, but I didn't. The very one to whom I should have given the greatest of urgency but yet I didn't. It will be a day of wrath then for them. It'll be a day in which you notice they will be the recipients of the second death. But not only that, let's turn the coin over to the other side. For it's also going to be a day of great blessing for some others. For on that day that this is this day of the Lord, there will be some who will be ready, prepared fully in position to appreciate the fact that they have been washed in the blood of the Lamb, Revelation 1, verses 5 and 6, and in so doing, they'll be ushered into an eternity in joy and bliss. And in so doing, you can hear the Master say, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Thou hast been faithful over a few things. I'll make thee ruler over many things. Enter thou into the joys of thy Lord, Matthew 25, verses 21 and 23. You see, for them it won't be a day of wrath. It won't be a day of gloominess and darkness. It'll be a day of celebration. It'll be a day of happiness. A day in which they'll fully be able to appreciate the fact that what they've longed for the most has now become a reality. You see, the day of the Lord will primarily be governed and moved by the way in which you and I are approaching the thought of that day now. Are you and I ready for the day of the Lord? 
if not, tonight's the night to begin getting ready to put things in order for the marriage supper of the Lamb is currently being prepared and you and I will want to be able to participate in it. As we close that slide and think about that day of the Lord, let's conclude our lesson then by making this statement that the Word, as it's used in the Bible, seemingly means something rather different than many in our current world would wish us to believe. For the vast majority, again, it's going to be a day of wrath and darkness and a day of judgment of God being received. But for those who are prepared, what a sweet thought it is. What an encouraging thought it is. Doesn't it lift your heart? And so tonight, the question comes to all of us. Are you ready for the day of the Lord? The Bible is filled with these references to challenge us and remind us and help us. The gospel plan of salvation is that you must believe with all of your heart that Jesus is the Son of God. Repent of your sins, confess His name, and then humbly be immersed in water, baptized for the remission of your sins. That's what the Lord Jesus taught, and that's what His inspired writers demand. If we could assist you in that way tonight, we'd be delighted to do it. If you, though, have become a Christian, but you haven't been true, and you haven't been faithful then notice you're in the same predicament that they in Matthew 24, verses 42 and following were in. And we know that Jesus there discussed how terrible it'll be for their lot. Why not come back tonight to your first love? Jesus is still in a position that He wants you to be saved, but He lets you make the final decision. If we could help you tonight as you make ready for the day of the Lord, a song of encouragement has been announced, and we'd use that as a convenient time to invite you to come and do so at once. While together we stand and while we sing.